Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Colorado Senator Jeff Bridges. He's not that Jeff Bridges, but he is one of the most interesting elected people in America today. He holds a master's degree in divinity and has been on the cutting edge of policy, including protecting LGBTQ plus rights and welcoming the way for driverless vehicles. He also has an intriguing take on campaigns and the future of democracy. Enjoy. Colorado State Senator Jeff Bridges, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start with a conversation that we were having last night that I think needs to be had more often and frankly almost never is, which is campaigning. You've campaigned for office. I have, actually. You have. A couple times. That's what makes you a New Deal leader. But- how how do you think about campaigning in your campaigns, and how do you think we all should be thinking about campaigning? Public service does not start when you get into the state house. That's not the beginning of of what it is that you do. You spend, we as elected officials, spend an enormous amount of time, energy, and money in campaigns. And to think of our job in public service as this thing that we do after we win a campaign misses the part of our of our job that is the most in touch with the people that we represent, the, the place where we have the biggest impact on how they think about government and how they think about what it is that we do. Let's unpack that because I think you're right that most people see us when we show up on their doorstep, best case scenario, worst case scenario, show up on their TV screen. Uh, most or in their most people don't think about us when we're not campaigning. <laughs> as much as we think about ourselves, <laughs> they're not thinking about us. So tell me, how do you campaign, do you think, that's that's different than other campaigns that you see going on around the country and maybe even other campaigns you've been involved with? Yeah. My background is on campaigns. I worked on, I ran communications on two congressional races in Colorado, two governor's races in the Deep South, and I actually ran a mayor's race for Jackson, Mississippi. So I have worked on campaigns for a long time. And then after that, I went to divinity school. So I'm the only state senator with a Master of Divinity degree, unique qualification, especially for a Democrat in the in the legislature. And, you know, I joke that I went to divinity school as kind of penance for the time <laughs> that I spent in politics, but it's only kind of a joke. Right. You know, there's ways to do campaigns that are really hard on the soul. And I think that is the way most campaigns, unfortunately, run. And so when I came back and decided to run for office myself, one of the deals I made, both myself and my my brilliant wife, Anne-Marie, was that we'd run a campaign in a way that was good, in a way that was good both for our souls and for the people that we were seeking to represent. Too often campaigns think of the people that whose votes they are trying to earn as tools, right? As means to an end. Campaigns are this means to an end. 
I really want to serve these people, but I got to convince them first uh, that I'm the right person to do it. But in that convincing, in that campaign, you get to talk to people, you get to interact with people. And, and by the way, most of the people who come and see you in your elected capacity, even members of Congress, even, even United States senators, those are very unique human beings. And as a state senator, people that even know who I am, that is, <laughs> it's, a unique, it's a unique class of, of folks, right? It's a unique swath of, of, the, of the many people that, that I represent and, and have that duty to represent. And so as you think about campaigns, I think the important thing is, is to remember those are people and to treat them like people. So let's let's do your pre-divinity school, post-divinity school. So <laughs> pre-divinity school, you're running a campaign. One is most elected officials I know are like, God, I don't want a campaign or I hope I can clear the field. And, you know, I just like, let me get through this and then I can do the real work. Yeah. People, now that I'm in the state Senate, people, I didn't have a campaign this year. And folks are like, oh, how nice of you not to have a campaign. I'm like, are you kidding me? I love campaigns. <laughs> campaigns are campaigns are the part that I do for free. Legislating is what they have to pay me for. <laughs> and it's and it's not that the work that we do in the legislature is is somehow less important. I mean, like we transform lives with the investments we make. But most people don't know about the stuff we do until we go out and tell them about it. The work does not speak for itself. This is this is such a democratic notion, right? That the work speaks for itself. It doesn't speak for itself. <laughs> <laughs> and and the people out there who are bragging the most about what they've done with the federal funds that have come down from from ARPA and, and all these programs, it's the Republican governors out there, right? And and they're the ones who most strongly opposed it. But now that they got the money and they're doing it, they're talking about all the stuff they're building. And Democrats, well, that's unseemly to brag about what we're doing. But if we don't brag, they're going to win. Yeah. And and this is maybe bigger picture, but but we're at a time in America where winning with our message and what we stand for is is a moral imperative because the other side wants to undermine democracy. Democracy is at stake. It was on the ballot this last election. The people of this country largely said, I believe in democracy. I want democracy to continue. But if we lose, the stakes are so high that I think we have a, a moral obligation to make sure that we don't lose what it is that, that we all value so much about this country. Let's talk about, there's because there's a tension there. Because what most people are going to say is, you're saying, look, I want to run clean campaigns. I want to run thoughtful campaigns. And I want to like drill down a little bit about what that looks like versus a normal campaign. But after that, people are going to say, that's great, except we're facing an existential threat and we cannot lose. So by any means necessary. Well, I have good news. I think this is not only the right thing to do, it's the winning thing to do. So think about, think about your experience on the doors. If you show up on a door and you knock and someone opens it and they see that you're holding campaign lit and their soul dies a little bit, if if all you do is read them a script and then ask for an ID and when they say, I just don't know, you're like, well, now I go to the second part of my script and you read that part and you're like, well, can we count on your vote now? And they're like, sure, fine, I guess. Give me the piece of paper in your hand and, and let me get back to my day. That is That is instrumentalizing the the person who you want to represent and it is dehumanizing to the person that you're asking to do that, to, to knock on those doors. What we do on our campaign is, is we show up to the door and we have a conversation. And we ask people what they care about. And if the only time the folks that are out there knocking for me say my name is when, they, when the person opens the door and they say, hey, I'm here with 
State Senator Jeff Bridges. He's running for election, and and they sort of you know enter into this this conversation. If it's if it's at the beginning of the conversation, the end of the conversation, where they say, "Well, can we count on your vote?" That's great because that's a human interaction, right? I, I tell folks to spend you know five to ten minutes on on each door, really engage, and, and it's hard to get folks to open up. So it's really a skill that has to be trained. We spend a lot of time in role playing scenarios with with uh, our staff because most people, when you knock on their door and they see that stack of lit, they assume you're going to read a script down. And so you have to sort of break the script, right? And and that's a tough thing to do. But when you do that, when you have that human interaction, both people walk away from that feeling better about their democracy. And that's what's at stake right now. People, I think people voted in large part for Donald Trump because he was a stick of dynamite versus kind of more of the same. And as wrong as I think that vote was, I understand why people feel like they needed to just vote for the stick of dynamite. Number one, they maybe haven't traveled the world as much and seen broken democracies and like broken countries and, and really how bad it can get. But folks don't feel connected. They feel alienated. But if you have that conversation at the door, if you you walk away healing our democracy through those conversations, you've done a good thing for the country and you have won that vote forever. And I want to say you give everyone your cell phone number. I do. That's right. I do. No one ever calls. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I, I have it on my website. Every piece of literature that we send out, every handout, my autoresponder for folks that email my official Senate account says, for a faster response, send me a text message. If this is urgent, a human being will read your email. But if this is urgent, here's my cell phone number. Give me a call. No one ever calls. <laughs> <laughs> and so I can see people out there like, oh my God. But- I think that I think this that's a that's a that's an illustration, right, of this idea of we're gonna be two human beings in the same way I would give a cell phone number to, you know, somebody I met who just who was like, Hey, let's stay in touch. Sure, I'll give you my cell phone. Let's stay in touch. Well, in the fact that no one ever calls is not a bad thing because they know they could. And that's what's most important. They know that if something happened, if there was something they happened to see in the news, they could reach out. Or if, if something's, you know, the, the, the sort of the most often the calls that I get are folks who, who are in a really tough circumstance and really struggling either with something federally or something at the state level. State level, I, I do the best I can to help them right away. And, and otherwise, I have a, sort of a cut and paste that I can send back to them and say, this is not something I as a state person can take care of. Like if someone needs a passport, for example, and here's the list of all of the folks who represent you nationally that can help you out with that. And by the way, for the passport folks, I've actually I've needed this before. I I like left my my passport in a taxi cab here in DC and uh, you know, luckily I had worked for US Senator Ken Salazar and so I called up a, a friend in the office. I'm like, "Hey, I desperately need a passport <laughs> or I can't get on a plane. And so the, the, the stuff that, and everyone listening to this podcast knows this, but the stuff that, that elected officials can do to help people out is not limited to you know what it is that most people think. But anyway, having that cell phone number out there is, is so key in folks knowing they have that connection, knowing that possibility is there. So how do you think about negative or attack pieces, especially when you're running against somebody, you know, it's one thing we have different points of view on taxes and spending and choice and other things. Another thing where you believe that they are a potential threat to the fundamentals of democracy. They're not going to recognize free and fair elections. They're going to overturn things. So in this in, in this process where we're making campaigning sort of part of governing, how do you think about the negative piece? 
So I never said you shouldn't talk about the terrible things your opponent has done or wants to do. What, what I am advocating for is that in those interactions with people, you treat them like people. But you know, when you're knocking on someone's door, if someone shows up at your door and just starts telling you like all these terrible things about your neighbor across the street, like, hey, this guy, no one likes that. It doesn't work. <laughs> you know, there's, there are venues for this, right? right. And, and there are ways to communicate that that aren't knock, knock, hey, my opponent is bad news. You're not going to win that vote. So be thoughtful about it. When you're developing that human relationship, have the relationship and, and like do what normal people do, which is not, I mean, some people like to, you know, share the hot goss uh, about their coworkers, <laughs> but that's not, it's not a good way to win a vote at a door. Focus on your own campaign. Focus on what you're doing. I think too many candidates spend too much time thinking about what their opponent is doing, especially at the state legislative level. Your ability to respond in real time to things that are being said about you, to mailers, the amount of lead time it takes to, to, to develop a response mailer, to then get it printed and sent out. By the time you send a mailer out about an attack that came against you, it is way too late. No one's going to remember what that attack was. The best way to inoculate against attacks is to have that relationship where people are like, you know, I know they're saying this terrible thing about Jeff, but yeah, I, I met Kylie, his campaign manager, and she was great. And I had such a good time in that conversation. I just don't believe that about Jeff. People aren't voting for me because of because Kylie came and told them the various issues I stand for. They're voting for me because they came and they had a real conversation and they trust Kylie. And if Kylie's supporting me, then I must be okay. And people don't trust any of that attack mail anyway these days, right? And so if, if they have that relationship to fall back on, there, it inoculates against the attacks, and there are different venues for you to say what you need to say about your opponents. One of the challenges, right, is scale, and that we all represent tens of thousands or millions of people. Tell me about building the team that believes in that, right? Like, Because mm. you can knock on doors, but you're also legislating and living a you know, living a life. And so it's, it's, you have during campaign season, you have at least two or three jobs that you're trying to keep it balanced. Tell me about building a team that's, that, that can, that can implement your vision. That is a great question. I have been extremely blessed to hire folks that maybe even when, when they started, didn't quite buy it. But the, the first couple of times they have a real conversation on a door, man, just it changes their outlook, right? People that are used to, to delivering that that sort of uh, uh, fifteen second or thirty second script for them to go and, and walk away from a door with it. They like, met someone, right? And they heard about their kids and the challenges they have in life, and that changes the way you think. And and they get bought in really quick. Hey, like what's beautiful to me is is I've developed relationships with with the folks that I represent. There's this this woman uh, that I that whose door I knocked. I wish I could remember her name, but the first time I knocked. Her husband was was sick, and and it was it was a really it was a tough conversation, but it was a, a beautiful moment between people. The next time I knocked, her husband had, had had passed away, and and her dog had had just passed away. And I'm like, ma'am, I am never knocking your door again because I feel like every time I come, I've, I'm like, I'm this is this is rough for you. I'm sorry. Through that conversation, though, we, we talked about how she used to comb her dog's hair and how you know what a great experience that was for her and and. What that companionship mattered to her. And she said, you know, at the end of the conversation, she's like, you know what? I'm going to get another dog. This conversation has been so helpful. And like, that's just the little, the little improvement you get to make to people's lives by, by just having a conversation. Right. And, and so the, when, when your staff has that experience, 
they change their mind right away because that that touches the soul, right? I'm also fairly sure that that she's voting for me, right? Like she she we made that connection. I, it doesn't matter what comes even in the mail. That dog after you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the come here, come here, senator, come here. Uh, it would be strange. Um, so the the connection that you can develop is is so meaningful. And by the way, it makes your campaign better. Like you enjoy your campaign more if you have those interactions. And and for so many people who hate campaigns, I think it's because they're doing it wrong. There are ways to do campaigns that are beautiful and moving and and make that incredibly hard work of going door to door, hour after hour, of making those phone calls, raising money so much more enjoyable. And and by the way, this isn't just just for for folks you meet on the doors. You can do this to donors too. Like you should act you should be tracking what's happening in those folks' lives. We take incredibly detailed notes at every door we knock which helps the next person who comes sort of find an entryway into that conversation. But it also allows us to go back and write postcards. So anyone whose door we knock, we send a postcard to. And we say, like, dear Alice, it was so wonderful talking with you. Thanks for taking the time. I hope Timmy has a great first day of school. And you know, Fluffy's just the most adorable dog ever. Thank you so much for your support. And when we come back to those doors months later sometimes, we have found those postcards taped onto people's fridge. That's crazy. Political mail in a fridge? That's nuts. And, and what it shows you is that these people are hungry for that connection, right? They, they want to have a relationship with their elected officials. They want to trust government. They want to know there's someone there who's going to take the time to listen. People want to feel listened to and, and heard. And that postcard reinforces that we heard what they said and we valued what they said. And that is not only someone we have reconnected to their democracy, which is the most important thing we can do right now. That is a vote we have won. You know, it's funny. So I'm in the last month of elective office after 16 years. And I- Condolences and congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Godspeed. And I'm thinking back to my younger self. When I first got elected, like I had a policy solution for every problem and probably some problems that actually weren't problems. <laughs> uh, I was ready to go. And good, good little progressive. Yeah, it. exactly. And as I think about what I've learned, I've actually come to the conclusion that 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 a law isn't always the answer. It's always, it's often about culture, and there's a problem between two neighbors. It's better just to let those two neighbors solve the problem than try to pass a law to solve this one problem. And it's when I think about what I've learned and how much I've changed, that's the single biggest change. And I think what you're talking about is creating a new culture around politics that if that woman who lost her husband and lost her dog has is incentivized or inspired to create to get a new dog, she's happier. And when she's happier, maybe her neighbors are happier, her other family's happier. And then like you start to build a build a better world. You know, you do important things in the legislature, but but I think I think that culture piece is undervalued. Yes. yes. This is this is the point that that I think I'm 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 trying to get to. The work you do as an elected official is so valuable and so meaningful and just look at the dollars amount spent in government, right? You can have a huge impact on people's lives. They don't necessarily know you're having that impact and they don't have that relationship with you. If democracy is under threat right now, which I think it is, I think a big part of the reason is because people feel alienated. It's not because we passed packages and bills and policies that are improving their lives and and like they just want us to do more policy and that's what's going to fix it. It's that they feel disconnected. It is it is 
it is a problem we can only solve, I think, during those campaigns, when we're reaching out to them, when we're talking to them. And if we look at campaigns as just this means to an end, we're going to do it the wrong way and we're going to increase that alienation. We're going to make it more likely that folks who want to undermine this country win. I want to ask, because so you're you're working on campaigns, you're sort of camp sounds like a little bit campaign for hire. We'll go where the, the big races are. <laughs> you go to Divinity School. What makes you then think about re-entering politics? Was that the plan? Or is it like, no, 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 I am this is a a plan and you know they uh, I try to get out, but they keep pulling they me pull back. Pull me in. back <laughs> in. That was not the plan. No, I was open when I went to Divinity School, I was really open to to whatever uh, my calling might be. And very quickly figured out that being a, a priest was was not it. I'm Episcopalian. So I love that there are people out there who can provide the one-on-one support to folks that that we so desperately need. Counselors, social workers, pastors, priests, rabbis. It is not something I'm cut out for. <laughs> I, I like I am I am much better at the policy level. And that being said, there is something about my training at Divinity School that is incredibly helpful. I, it feels to me genuinely that I have this flock and they are my constituents that I represent and I get to talk with them every couple of years, but because we keep those notes and because, you know, I remember having these conversations it is in some ways there's there's a, a ministerial part of it, right? And and I love that. There's a connection that is made that my divinity school training really helped me figure out how to make and 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 how to do well. For instance, I knocked on the door. I, I said, "Hey, I'm State Senator Jeff Bridges. Grew up here. Uh, worked for Ken Salazar in the U.S. Senate. I'm running for the State House. Want to bring folks together. I did that at Divinity School. It's, it's my whole thing is is bringing folks together around shared values." How are you doing? What what's important to you? And she goes, "Well, I was just diagnosed with lung cancer this morning." And at that moment, I had to decide if I finished my packet. Right. <laughs> right? I'm like, "I'm so sorry. I got like 20 more doors to knock and only a couple hours to do it." Uh or if if I was a human, right? right. How do I show up in that moment? And this is a, a tension that I see in so many public servants that they care so deeply about the individuals, but they also see this bigger picture that they feel like they have the only way that they can get to that bigger picture and and make that bigger difference is in some ways instrumentalizing that human that they care so deeply. That's why they're in public service. So I I sat with her, I, I prayed with her, you know, I spent a good hour and a half just helping her process this news that she had just had. And and that stays with me, you know. When when we vote on on things that affect Medicaid, you know, I, I think about the struggles that that she's going through, and it is it is a way it, it having that human connection with the people you represent not only helps them, it helps you. You're a better elected official. You're better when you think about the challenges, when you think about bills, when you make your votes. You know the people whose lives you're impacting. Yeah, I. It's something. It's something that I've developed over years where I like I, I knocked on a door. There's a single mom in this neighborhood. I think about her when things come up. Would she like this? Would she not like this? Does right, this help? Right. Does not help? And you know, that's Older actually- a retired couple. That's like, a thing yeah. they teach you to do in, in companies when you're, when you're right. thinking about your products, when you're thinking about your brand. Like you, you create these, these vignettes of human beings actually that, that uh, you're like, what would Tony think about this? What would Mary think about this? 
Tony, Mary, and Sally are human beings that I've met on the doors <laughs> as an elected official, they're right? Actually they're actual, real yeah. They're not the corporate, like, well, Tony is a 45-year-old male. That, you know, they're, they're people. Right. And I can call them up. I've got the phone numbers, you know, and, and I know where they live. Not in a, not in a creepy way. Uh, but like, yeah. I, I, I can go knock on their door and have that conversation. And I do. You know, coming back year, year after year, I, I get to have that conversation. COVID was the hardest. Oh, 2020, not being able to knock on doors, not being able to, to, to do that was, was crushing for me. And the best part about this last election was not that I wasn't on the ballot. It was that I, I got to go around the entire state. You know, I, I, I knocked doors for all of our competitive state Senate candidates and had just beautiful conversations with people um, that really reconnected me to the work that we're doing. So how do you think, and that, so this, that's interesting because if you're in other districts, there are, there are local issues, there may be state issues that are playing out differently in those districts and getting that perspective. How do you think, can you give us some examples of how it's informed your policy choices in the session? So everyone across the state, everyone across the country is looking for that connection with their elected officials. And you know, I show up and I'm in someone else's state Senate district and I say, hi, I'm Senator Jeff Bridges. I go, oh, you're you're my senator. I say, no, I'm not. I'm not your senator. Uh, I'm here because your senator is amazing, and we want your senator to keep being amazing. And but they're just so happy to to speak with someone who is who's in the mix, coming to their door. Right? It is the personal connection that I make, even outside my district, is is meaningful for them and meaningful for me. One example of of someone whose door I knocked this this last cycle that I am taking with me into the legislature this session for sure is a woman down in Colorado Springs who was on the phone when I knocked on her door on hold with her pharmacy. She'd been on hold for an hour and 15 minutes. She does this every month because it's what she has to do to get her birth control. And we passed a law my first year in the legislature, Congresswoman Brittany Pedersen ran it, to require that pharmacies dispense 12 months of birth control at a time. There's no reason that women in this country should have to ask for permission every month to not get pregnant. That's lunacy. So we passed this bill, but because of the way that pharmacy benefit management companies handle prescriptions, it didn't work. So she is still on the phone every month for an hour and a half to get her birth control. Now, most people don't have to spend an hour and a half on the phone, but if even one person does, that's insanity. And, and if I meet one person doing that, there's probably a lot more. And we passed this law, right? So I am going back into this next session and we are going to fix that. We are going to make sure that people can get 12 months at a time uh, because not being able to do that is the, the lost productivity, just the hassle. Like That's not a thing that you should have to deal with. And government's job is to get barriers out of the way. Big picture. Government is there to make your life easier where possible. This is certainly one of those things. And to not be there at all when you don't need it. It should be in the background and disappear. But that's a that's maybe a different podcast. Well, I want to jump in a little bit because I do think Colorado and the Democratic successes, but the, the tone of Colorado Democrats, I think it resonates with where I think the country needs to be in a, in a way that you know, and I'll say this as a, as a California Democrat, <laughs> uh, maybe the coastal Democrats don't. And so talk a little bit about, about what you think those of us nationwide, we can obviously learn about campaigning and writing thank you what notes can you learn and about cell phones. And, but what, what, what can we learn from Colorado, you think? In Colorado, 95% of the bills we pass are bipartisan. 
Democrats control the, the, the governor's office, they control the Senate, they control the House. We could pass 100% of bills with no Republican support. But what we do is we value that bipartisanship. And so on, on 95% of bills, we find a way to, to change the bill maybe, to, to amend it, to get Republican support because bills are better if you can get that support from the other side. Now, some things we just have to fight on, right? I, I did actually, I did have a bill where a Republican didn't vote for it. It was safe storage of firearms and there was never going to be a Republican vote for that bill. Understand that. They didn't fight it that hard because it makes sense. It's one of the most important things we can do to reduce teen suicide, to reduce accidental gun deaths, little kids, and they were never going to vote for it. But 95%. People want folks to work together. When I, I mentioned this you know, very, very briefly uh, earlier on, that my pitch on the door is that I went to divinity school, and it was a really interreligious, diverse place. It was all about bringing folks together around shared values. And that's what I want to do in the legislature. That is the job of a legislator. It is finding that common ground, bringing folks together and doing good things for the people you represent. And so if there's anything to learn from what we do in Colorado, it is that we are dedicated without necessarily the, the political requirement, but we are dedicated to that bipartisan governing. And I think that's part of why we expanded our majorities by so much in the state house and the state senate this last election because people looked at at what we've been doing they saw that that we govern responsibly that we govern in a bipartisan way with our colleagues across the aisle and they said that's what we want we want more of that and so this idea that and this is an important this is sort of the a new deal mantra right like this last election was not a a mandate to go and, and pass the most extreme left-wing policies you can this last election was a choice between a party that was undermining democracy and a party that the party of stability right democrats right now are the party of stability we could lose that i think pretty easily if we implement some of the policies that that folks are advocating for. I think New York State is a good example of, of potentially going too far in that direction and alienating those voters. But reach across the aisle. Talk with your colleagues. Find common ground. Republicans represent a lot of people. <laughs> and those people's voices matter. If, you, if you're really dedicated to representing the people that you represent, a lot of those people are Republicans. So if it's possible to to amend a bill in a way that gets Republican support is probably more representative of the desires of the people that you represent. Again, it's a cultural thing, right? Like there's no rule that you have to have bipartisan support. It's mm -hmm. a it's it, there's a culture developed that says we're gonna we're gonna reach out, we're gonna hear you. We may not always agree, may not always change, but 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 we're gonna engage you and try to see if we can move you there. People want to feel valued and heard. Yeah. This is a universal. Everybody, you, me, we, we want to feel valued and heard. And our Republican colleagues want that too. And when we give that to them, in return, they give us amendments, they improve our bills, we work together. It is, it is a better culture. It makes it easier on me, right? Like just your life at the legislature is better if you're not constantly fighting with everyone around you. And people want to feel valued and heard. Make sure they are. It strikes me that this is this is it's crazy that it's so common sense what you're saying that basically just add a little bit of humanity to our politics, right? Uh, and have a little bit longer term view. But it is so antithetical to all the incentives in the system right now, everything people are talking about. I actually I disagree. Okay. I think I think the incentives nationally maybe are that way. 
and and you know it used to be that all politics are local all politics seem to be national these days right. people people are are tribally identified they're a lot less so in Colorado. And, and we did some things electorally to make that happen. Unaffiliateds get to vote in primaries. I think that's helpful. But I, I actually, I think the incentives are to work together. The people who reach out to you on Twitter don't represent even your primary voting audience. We just learned this stat earlier today. Nine out of 10 Democratic primary voters are not on Twitter. <laughs> Twitter is not your universe. The people who reach out to you as an elected official, are generally speaking not representative of your constituency. People want us to work together. They do. They want Republicans and Democrats to find common ground. People truly believe, even I think partisan uh, liberals and, and conservatives on both sides think that a divided government can work better because you have to find compromise. And that's not a dirty word. I think our extreme wings on either side want to drive us further apart. And I think the extreme wing on the, the Republican side is extremely dangerous to the continued existence of, of this uh, uh, democracy. But you know, both are trying to drive us apart. The vast majority of people, even the vast majority of primary voting Democrats, want folks who know how to bring people together and get stuff done. So you're heading into a legislative session. What do you hope to get done Besides everything, uh, yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> besides, uh, besides uh, not making that woman sit on hold for an hour and a half every month uh, for no good reason. What else are your priorities this this legislative session? I really want ranked choice voting in presidential primaries in Colorado because we have vote by mail, and that means that if I turned my ballot in when it showed up at my door, and I voted for Elizabeth Warren or Mayor Pete. By the time my vote was counted, both of those folks had dropped out. So technically, I voted in that primary, but my vote did not count. And so I would really like some way either to, to rank it and then the number one choice that's still running at that point gets is, is where my vote goes to or you know that instant runoff. But some way to make sure that, that people's votes are actually being counted is, is one of the things that I'm working on this next session. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can talk about that. But I, I think broadly, you know, more broadly speaking, the, the stuff that we are facing in Colorado, the challenges we're facing in Colorado are education funding and housing. Housing is is such a huge challenge. And then the cost of healthcare, but that's true everywhere. In Colorado, our hospitals are the most expensive in the country. So that's clearly a place we need to work. But I'd say education, housing, and healthcare are the top three things. And I'm on the budget committee, so I get to spend some time digging into those. <laughs> I, I'm sure that I'm sure I'm wondering if you could draw a connection between your divinity school training and budget appropriations. Uh, <laughs> I can. No, I. You want here? I do. So in in the state senate, the joint budget committee. It's six people across the entire legislature, and in the Democratic caucus in the Senate, we elect our our two folks to that. We're in the majority, so we get two. I ran on the budget as a moral document. The budget puts in black and white, with with dollars and cents attached exactly what we value and how much we value it. That's it. That's the budget. It's values. It reflects our values. So I take really seriously that we need to craft a budget that represents our Colorado values. And and as we make these decisions about what we're going to spend money on, you know, when when my colleagues bring a bill to me and they say, I really need to, to get funding for this thing, I can say, well, because of Tabor, we have this revenue cap in Colorado. By the way, anyone who's looking at implementing Tabor talk to us because we've even in extremely conservative Republican states, folks have not voted for this because of what it's done in Colorado. But you know, we have this cap 
which means that if you want your bill funded, you kind of have to tell me whose grandma you want kicked out of a nursing home on Medicaid or you know what elementary school you want to close in your district because those are the choices, right? We are in a severe budget uh, limitation right now and it's going to be hard choices that that need to come down at the end of the day to to values. I wonder if, you know, as you campaign in your new way, build trust, build resilience if if the the voters be willing to lift that cap once they once they have trust, right? If it's a if yeah. it's a winner take all, yeah, and they're like, well, whoever gets up there, I just want to make sure they don't do anything bad. Yeah, that's one thing. If they're like, well, like these people walk knock on my door, they ask about my dog, they mm-hmm. like ask about my kid. Maybe I maybe I'll trust them a little more. Well, I think effectiveness is a big part of building trust too. If you think about what is it that is required for trust, the connection is certainly a big piece of that. But if we don't deliver, then I'm like, well. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I I like that person, but you know, I'm not seeing anything from that. That's a that's a breach of trust, right? Jared Polis has been amazing at navigating very complicated politics in our state, and you know, from from COVID to the economic recovery, I think he has an enormous amount of credibility with the people of Colorado. I think that's a big part of why we won. People saw his policies as representative of Democrats in Colorado. I think we have a, a unique sort of Colorado Democrat brand. Jared contributes to that. Hickenlooper and Bennett both contribute to that. And because of that brand, maybe we can convince the people of Colorado to, at the very least, tie the cap on the growth of government instead of to CPI, which is like the cost of dishwashers and washing machines, which is not what the government buys, to maybe tie it to something more reasonable like average wage, right? Because the government hires people. That's what we spend most of our money on. We hire people. And so if you want to cap government in some way, other than just the tax revenue we bring in, which by the way, we can't raise taxes in Colorado without a vote of the people. We haven't raised taxes in Colorado except on sin taxes since that requirement went in. Side note, because we can't raise taxes and because we have the Tabor cap, we we struggle to, to sort of maintain the service of government that we have promised the people we will maintain. And Jared's trust, I think, may the trust people have in Jared may be able to find us a way through that. That was a long-winded way of saying, yeah, I hope you're right. I think we can do that. <laughs> I don't know. It's good. Uh, <laughs> look, I think one of the reasons we're sitting, I should say, we're sitting at a New Deal conference right now, the annual conference. One of the reasons I love coming to these conferences is to meet folks who have a different take on politics than the winner take all that seems to dominate so much of it. And on behalf of all the New Deal leaders, I want to thank you for for having that vision and maybe making at least our campaigns a little better. And then we can start build it from there. But uh, I think it's a it's a good model and I like I like the thank you notes. The cell phones, we're going to have to think about. But uh, <laughs> well, wise a serpent and isn't his doves, right? We we have to win these elections. We can't win it their way. I, I ran communications and I always considered my job to tell the truth better than the other guy lied. <laughs> we can make the truth beautiful. We can make it attractive. We can win with the truth, uh, but we've got to get out there and do it. From your lips to to the voters' ears and doorsteps. Um, <laughs> thank you for uh, thank you for being part of the New Deal. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to hearing what the next endeavor is. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>